Spark Nation. I'm Jim Wyatt, founder of ETF.com and CEO of Spark Network. And this is Pennies from Heaven, a podcast featuring choice insights and lively debate with all the biggest names in the ETF world and beyond. Join us to receive Pennies from Heaven straight from the nattering nabobs of investment as they discuss hot button topics and what's to come. This is Jim Wyant, and we have a real treat for you today discussing the crypto ETF and investment space. Running point on the hard talk is Eric Bauchunas, Senior ETF Analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence. Representing the advisor perspective is Rick Edelman, the founder of Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals and of Edelman Financial Engines. And from the product perspective, we have Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer of Bitwise Asset Management, Leah Wald, CEO of Valkyrie, and Simeon Hyman, who is head of investment strategy group at ProShares. No one has been more dialed into the horse race for the crypto ETF launches than Eric Bauchunas. So I'll leave it to him to do a deep dive into where we've been, where we are, and where things could be headed in the space. So Eric, take it away. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, I've been immersed in this for eight years. In fact, when the ProShares ETF finally got approved. I felt like it was over, but it was just beginning. And I was exhausted, uh, to be honest. So any analyst covering this has known there's been so many twists and turns and subplots and it's just getting started. So yeah, I'm a little burned out, but it's very exciting. You know, ETFs only kick down the door of a new asset class once every decade. So I had some people saying, hey, you guys are covering this too much. And I'm like, no, 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 this is a once in a decade situation here. We need to get every possible angle of this. So we have a great group here. This is probably the most ideal group of people to discuss this. If any, you know, media format I've been on since the, this all sort of started uh, two or three weeks ago when, when Bitto launched. So uh, where do we start? It's like an embarrassment of riches here. Um, let me just start with Simeon because Bitto is the big ETF. So that's the one that launched. And we'll get to Leah. They came in second. Simeon, I mean, I guess just talk about how you were able to sort of figure out how to get this ETF out and, and how the launch has gone since and, and everything uh, is very popular. It's one of the, the fastest growing ETF of all time. Take us through what your world has been like over the past uh, couple of weeks. Thanks very much, Eric. And I've been quite busy as, as you have been in. And of course, we're really excited. ProShares Innovation is core to what we do. To launch this ETF was as much about Bitcoin, but it's also about, as you know, yeah, how do you put futures like this in an ETF? And that's near and dear to our heart at ProShares too. So when we saw the developing opportunity to get this ETF allowed by the SEC, we thought it would really solve and provide a solution for a lot of people out there who just weren't quite ready or had the appetite to figure out what to do to get Bitcoin exposure in other ways. Yeah, it, it's a paradox. Bitcoin is designed to be this decentralized, unregulated thing. So how do you create a vehicle that would be regulated to get that done? And we think that the futures approach is a really robust one. It's belt and suspenders. You have that regulated futures market, and then you're in what we call the 40 Act. You're in a regular ETF that people can buy and sell in brokerage accounts. And as you noted, the response has been really, really strong. We were the fastest ETF to a billion dollars. It's trading really well. And importantly, too, options on the ETF started trading right away. So the uh, response has been quite rewarding for us, and we're glad to bring the solution. So all that's great. ETFs great. There was the big but in this whole situation, and that is the fact that it holds futures and there's roll costs. If you took that out, I think all of us analysts would have been much happier. We could have just said, this is great, but there's this big sort of uh, situation with the role and a lot of people came down on this. Uh, Leah, how are you defending the role? How are you trying to position this to advisors and investors as a possible long-term solution beyond just the trading tools? Thanks, Eric. Luckily for Valkyrie, we're still in front month. So right now we're still feeling pretty confident about role costs and general tracking. I do think that it still is a fantastic product for advisors when, you know, us on this call, we're very familiar with the pros and cons of buying spot, both in our personal accounts, and actually it can be quite expensive still. So I think that when analysts or advisors come to us and talk about any concerns about 
potentially the expense ratio and or other costs associated with just the structure of the ETF. Often we also discuss the different costs related to the underlying and the other options available. So I guess to answer your question, Eric, at Valkyrie, we're not too concerned right now about those costs. And usually we're having good conversations with the advisors. All right. So I'm actually saving Rick because he is an advisor for the, for the last word on this. Matt, I heard you on Nature AC's podcast and you're an interesting figure in this because you guys sort of came out and said at the 11th hour, no, don't approve these. They're not good. You should approve a spot, which we all agree with. But they are approving futures, and now you guys have ones coming out. How do you sort of wrestle with that idea that it's not ideal, but this is what the reality is? How are you going to try to, I guess, truthfully sell this to advisors? Yeah. Given that there, there's a roll cost that you're an ETF analyst at heart, and you know that it's, it's, it's kind of annoying. Huh. I love these products. I think both ProShares and Valkyrie did an amazing job uh, getting from zero to one and making an ETF available that's there for advisors. Bitwise is actually going to withdraw its application to launch a futures-based ETF. And we're doing that because what we're seeing in the market based on both market status and the level of contango, as well as regulatory developments that were different from when we filed versus today, is we think it's hard to design a product that's great for long-term investors. We think these products are good for short-term traders, medium-term traders. And for those markets, first-to-market is really exquisitely important. These two providers have very liquid products that are ideal for people who want short-term access. Bitwise was going to come to market because we think we can build relationships with advisors that help them understand crypto. We're good at education and we could work with them for long-term allocations, in which case being first or second wasn't that important. We now increasingly, for, for market and regulatory reasons, think these are short-term uh, tools primarily. And so, so we're going to be withdrawing our, our application and focusing our attention on a Bitcoin spot product. That doesn't mean in the future we might not be interested in futures-based ETFs on other crypto assets. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with futures-based exposure. It's just uh, for, for a company focused on long-term investors, it's going to be you know, a third to market. It doesn't make sense for us to move forward. We think these are primarily short-term trading tools, a little bit like, Eric, other futures-based ETFs. Crude oil, USO, is not a great long-term investment. It's a good way to trade the direction of oil. That's true of many futures-based products. And I think that's the direction it's going long-term. So that's our strategic play. Thank you for breaking news on here. Do you mind if I tell Katie Greifeld? Uh, I'm sure she'd like to write a story on it. You can wait till the end of the podcast. Okay. All right. Thank you. So Rick, let me um, position the way Matt positioned the futures ETF on Nate's podcast, because I thought it was very effective. And I'll let you respond because you are an advisor. He was saying, well, look, advisors are fearing pressure. The ETF plugs into the plumbing way better than going to an exchange. Advisors are comfortable with ETFs. And okay, fine. The roll cost is 10 to 20% a year. You're up 90% instead of 110%, but it's better than non-investing. That's sort of how we position it. I thought that was effective. What, what do you say? Yes to all the above, what everybody is saying. I've been involved in the crypto space since 2012, and we have all been looking for the achievement of the attainment of the whole, which is a Bitcoin ETF. My prediction uh, is that we will see a Bitcoin ETF within 18 months, and I've been saying that for seven years. So uh, in the absence of that ETF, the Bitcoin futures ETF is a step toward the uh, ultimate achievement. And so my view has been very similar to Matt's and the disclosure, I'm an investor uh, in Bitwise. So my, my view as both an advisor and uh, someone who's been in heavily involved in the digital asset space for a long time, Bitwise, the, the Bitcoin futures ETF serves the best interests of Gary Gensler and the SEC. It serves obviously the best interests uh, of these two illustrious ETF providers. It serves the entire crypto community. It serves some investment advisors and it serves some clients. So what do I mean by all that? Well, one of the reasons that we have been observing the SEC's reluctance to approving a Bitcoin ETF is because the SEC has said repeatedly that they're not sure they have regulatory jurisdiction. I mean, they declared a long time ago that Bitcoin's not a security. Well, therefore, how can they be regulated? And they have some issues about custody and about pricing, transparency and legitimacy. And so they've been very, very reluctant and to date refusing to say okay to a Bitcoin ETF. 
but futures are clearly within the SEC's jurisdiction. So this is clearly a way for the SEC to do their job of providing uh, a 40 act product that they can regulate, control, monitor, supervise, and help protect consumers. But nothing in that conversation has anything to do with making money, with buying an investment that grows as well as we would all hope. And as Matt pointed out, futures are not the same as the underlying security. Futures have a short time horizon by their very definition. They're expensive because of the frequent trading that gets involved. And you not only have to be right about the price, you have to be right about when the price is going to reach what you think it's going to reach. So futures are not a substitute for long-term investment. And if you doubt that premise, just ask yourself this. Do you tell your clients to buy stocks or do you tell them to buy stock futures? Clearly, there's a difference between the two. So this is really no different. Bitcoin futures can very easily have a play uh, and a role in a diversified portfolio. It is extraordinarily effective for traders and short-term investors. And these two products are absolutely wonderful in fulfilling that. Uh, it also serves uh, to a big advantage that a lot of investors are sitting on the sidelines in the crypto space because buying Bitcoin is cumbersome, difficult, awkward. We're not used to it. Dealing with exchanges we've never heard of, and it's just goofy and weird. And we've all been waiting for an ETF. Well, here we are. We've got a couple of ETFs now that if not, they're really Bitcoin, they're darn close. So it's a way to get people engaged who otherwise were sitting on the sidelines. And to your point, Eric, earning 90% instead of 110%, who's going to complain about that? So is it the ideal? Is it what we really want to see? No. But is it a stepping stone in the right direction? Does it help legitimize the overall marketplace, make it more mainstream? Sure. Is this a step in the right direction? Mazel tov. Let's, let's keep going in that direction. And we're happy to see the products as long as investors and their advisors understand the product that they're buying was good. Well, let me ask you this then. Let's just say I had a crystal ball and I could tell you that Genzer is not going to approve a spot for, say, 18 months to two years. If you're an advisor, and I guess you want to, I want you to think of all advisors, do you go ahead and use a futures one in the interim and sort of just accept that roll cost as part of the deal? Or do you think of a different way to get Bitcoin more directly through an exchange or do you just wait? There are other ways to consider as well, which personally I would probably do. You can buy the OTC securities from Grayscale, Bitwides, and Osprey. You can buy the proxies such as MicroStrategy, which Jones $7.5 billion with the Bitcoin, or Riot Blockchain or Marathon Digital, which are Bitcoin miners. So you can, uh, or you can do the picks and shovels route. There's a wide variety of ETFs in the marketplace that don't buy the coins, but are buying the companies that are building the infrastructure. And it's kind of a, an alternative uh, approach again, within the ETF world. So there's a wide variety of ways to do this. What I would argue is if you truly believe in diversification, you should do the above. You should do a little bit of everything because there's no reason to make a bet to go in, into one specific approach. You are better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. And if you think that's a very profound statement, well, it is because it was Warren Buffett who said that. Let me go back to you, Matt, and then Simeon and Leah. Matt, look, you've been no fan of GBTC. I think I heard you call it poison once on a stage with me, um, something like that. But I, you're very good uh, with uh, getting the crowd going, so I appreciate that. But so GBTC is trading at a 15% discount, something like that. It clearly is a flawed product because you have this third element of like, where's the premium and discount? It's, it's like a close-end fund. Some argue that you should, if an advisor has a choice, they should buy that over a Bitcoin futures DTF, because at some point that could be made whole and that's a free 15% if you can wait long enough. Whereas the, the futures ETF would corrode over time. But then there's also, as Rick said, the idea of holding micro strategy, but that's only 74% correlation. Whereas GBTC and BITO are 99% correlation. So it's a little tighter to spot. What do you say about sort of comparing the futures ETF to those other options? Well, I'd even say more broadly, Eric, there's no perfect solution in getting exposure to Bitcoin so far. There's no platonic ideal of Bitcoin exposure. I think a spot-based ETF that was low cost would be the platonic ideal of Bitcoin exposure for financial advisors, but we don't have that yet. So each advisor has to decide which trade-off do they want to make. The futures-based product fits perfectly into advisor workflows, and the trade-off you're making is roll costs and contango. GBTC fits 
awkwardly into advisor workflows, but some it works. The trade-off you're making is the unknowable premium and discount. Crypto equities fit perfectly into advisor workflows. The trade-off you're making is that 50 to 75% correlation. Private funds give you exactly that spot exposure, but you have huge paperwork burdens and they may not be approved on your platform. The financial advisor space is a very wide space with lots of different personalities. And the most important thing is that advisors decide which they want to tackle and which they don't. So it's just understanding the risks. You know, at Bitwise, we have an OTC traded security. We have private funds and we create an index that underlies crypto equity ETFs. Uh, and we do that because we're trying to meet advisors where they are and different products fit different needs. I really think the future space ETF has a big place to play. And for advisors who need a regulated 40 act product, it's a great solution. It just comes with this added layer of complexity is that as long as you understand that you can make an appropriate choice. So different strokes for, for different folks on this one. And so Simeon, you're out there talking to people about this product. Are, are you sort of having to sell it versus GBTC, uh, MicroStrategy or actual like Coinbase accounts? Like what's your, who's your main competition here? The role that it has to play in bringing that simplicity and solution is clearly a core part of the value proposition. And a, a lot of folks are, are people who haven't invested in Bitcoin at all to date. So I think many of these people are, are new to the party, if you will. For a little bit of other background here, I'm going to go with 95 cents. So since the CME futures actually launched, the average roll cost has been about 5% annualized. It was actually in the month of September, it was about 2% annualized. So the efficiency that's coming to the market through the ETFs, through the options on the ETFs is likely to bring some of those roll costs down over time because this is not USO. There's no physical delivery can go negative. A lot of the weird things that people have experienced in other futures markets aren't really here. As another example, the futures curve, if anything, it flattens a little bit. That means if you do have to go into that second month, the roll cost could actually be lower. In other words, it's not like a VIX thing that's mean reverting and, you know, the beta sort of dissipates over time. None of that's been manifest in the futures market. So nothing's perfect. You can't invest in the number that you see in the corner of your TV screen. There are multiple exchanges. Even when you go to an exchange, you still have to decide whether they hold my wallet, do I hold my wallet? So there really isn't anything perfect, but we think this is a very powerful solution for a lot of folks. Yeah, no, when I tweet about this, uh, there's always some crypto people, not your key, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. But you that for Coinbase, that's, not, that's also not your key. So Leah, let's talk about I was just looking at Coinbase, which is considering to let ETFs trade. And I'm like, why would they ever do that? If they're going to go and allow commission-free ETF trading. And if you don't make a commission-free, no one would use it. And then the ETF, BitO and BTF traded uh, 0.01% is the spread. It's basically free to trade. I talk about that, how powerful that is. And whether you're going to be able to actually peel people away from the exchanges who are paying up to one, 150 basis points. I mean, these exchanges are making a killing. It reminds me of stockbrokers in 1975. It just seems like the ETF could really disrupt some of these exchanges. Am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong at all. And I do love, obviously, the adage. We've all been along, you know, around long enough to enjoy the adage of not your keys, not your coin. And that actually is a very important one. And I think why a lot of investors invest in all of the funds that Bitwise Pro shares ourselves and other companies in the space have. A lot of it is around belief that we are able to provide better security and custody than what they can do themselves. I think that especially if for high net worth individuals and institutions, there is a huge premium that from a perspective uh, standpoint that people are willing to pay for trusting that we are doing it correctly. Now, with the Bitcoin futures product, that's very simple. We're buying CME futures. For the private funds that especially Bitwise and Valkyrie has, you know, we have very strict security methods on how we custody. Uh, a lot of individuals are buying and keeping their coins on the exchanges, and there's hacks are still rampant. It's not the same as 2017, where 
it was quite obscene, but it's still very dangerous. And that's especially because that's from a user perspective as well. You can be hacked and therefore your account can get hacked. So it's not even from a systemic black hat coming into trying to hack Coinbase itself. But again, it really comes down to the individual perspective. So Eric, I do think that there will be users little by little that understand the importance of being able to feel more confident in the security of, again, a Bitcoin futures ETF is obviously very secure on that front. But if they wanted to either move their coin or feel more confident in direct coin exposure, I think that the private funds do provide a good opportunity and hopefully that spot Bitcoin ETF one day. To your point about Coinbase, that's potentially the best that we have in the market, but there's a lot of other exchanges with a whole lot more security vectors that are way more dangerous. You know, as, as mentioned previously, I believe by Matt, the SEC has been very, you know, concerned about security and custody. And that's been a conversation that the SEC has been having for a long time since issuers started putting in applications. I think that a lot has, we've gone very far in that regard, but I think that there's still a lot of unknowns and not all of these exchanges and service providers in the general greater ecosystem are still regulated in a way that I think the SEC feels confident and maybe that the users even understand and investors actually understand how those protocols are put in place. So Eric, let me build on that because Lydia is, is, is hitting on something that's extraordinarily important. And it represents my, frankly, my biggest criticism of the SEC to date. The SEC is terribly concerned about consumer protection and consumer confidence, as rightly so. And we love the SEC for the work that they do in that regard. But in their hesitancy to say yes to a Bitcoin ETF, what they've effectively done is shut out the advisory community from engaging in this space because the vast majority of financial advisors want to use 40 Act products. That's what we use in our practices. That's how we build portfolios. It's how we diversify, rebalance, engage in tax management, do our billing so that we can get paid. And in the absence of a 40 Act product, advisors and their firms, their compliance and legal departments aren't going to say to the advisor, tell your client to open a Coinbase account. And Coinbase doesn't even facilitate. And I'm using Coinbase as a generic for all those exchanges. Most of the vast majority of them don't work with the advisory community. They won't allow the advisor to block trade on behalf of their entire book. They won't debit the accounts for their fees. Many of them don't even accept account registrations other than a single individual. So we can't do our estate planning strategies either. So the advisory community has been largely shut out of the crypto uh, investment opportunities because of the absence of 40 Act products. And although the SEC may be taking the attitude that we're not a approving a Bitcoin ETF because we're concerned about it, the net result is then clients haven't been able to get the help they need from their advisor, the way they get help for every other investment opportunity. This has caused many consumers to go into that wild west on their own without any guidance. And we've seen bad outcomes as a result of this because of some of the bad players that exist and simply people don't knowing what the heck they're doing. The existence of the Bitcoin futures ETF, if it's doing nothing else, it's now allowing compliance departments to say, okay. We got this. This is now very similar to the other ETFs on the marketplace. We can incorporate it into our businesses very seamlessly and easily. It's not a compliance or a legal risk. We can add it to the practice management. We can easily train the advisors on this. The advisors can easily present it to clients, managing it like all other ETFs. And even if it isn't a perfect product, it is sure as hell better than nothing and sure as hell better than what has otherwise been available in the marketplace. So this is wonderful news in that regard. And that's one of the reasons that advisors are embracing it and why it is, you know, the fastest growing ETF in history. So let me go to Matt. Rick, you brought up the 1940 Act. And I think that is uh, arguably Gensler loves that act. It's got a lot more protections than the 33 Act. But because Bitcoin isn't a security, it can't go under the 40 Act. So I guess, Matt, um, as somebody who is probably knows more than anybody about what what the SEC is looking for. You've written documents and PowerPoints for the years on this. Is it about getting Bitcoin denoted a security or is it about the exchanges becoming more regulated so that he feels comfortable approving a 33 Act fund? Oh, that's a great question, Eric. Let me go way back and give the SEC some credit. The first Bitcoin ETF application was in 2013. 
I don't think the Bitcoin market was ready for an ETF in 2013. Custody wasn't solved. Broker dealer wasn't solved. There was more market manipulation. There was, there's not a futures market available there. So I think people who assume that the SPC has just been delaying for political purposes, I think that's wrong. I think they've been engaged with the process and the industry has matured. Now, I think we've passed the point where we should have a, a spot Bitcoin ETF. What is their real concern? I do think ultimately the SEC wants to regulate crypto exchanges. And I think ultimately that will be better for the crypto market and lead to more growth. And I don't know, I actually can't speculate on whether they're using the ETF as sort of a, a cudgel uh, to get in there. I'll just say, honestly, they've had real concerns. People have tried to meet them. I think they're anchored on a crypto past. And so they, they hold crypto to a very, very high standard. But I, I personally don't believe in the bigger conspiracy theories of them using, like delaying the approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF as a way of, of aggregating regulatory power on the crypto industry. I think it, it's been more specific than that pre-Gensler. And what Gensler's done so far is take the first step he could, which is the smallest step he could. And we should applaud him for that. And I think they'll eventually get to, to spot. But again, I hate to press you on this. Love it. In order to approve a spot ETF, Gensler has to be okay with a 33-act lighter protection regulation. Yeah. And he just doesn't, every time he's interviewed, he says the word investor protection like 18 times. And that's the 40 acts full of it, 33 act instant. So even if they clean up the exchanges and made them perfect and regulated, would he would he be okay with the 33 act? Since we're getting deep into the regulatory nerdville space, I'm happy to do that. The, the difference between a 40 act and a 33 act, the re, he mentions investor protections, and that means an independent board and additional disclosures. But the bigger difference is that 1940 acts don't need to file 19B4 applications which is an exemption to the listing standard that 33X have to require. And the thing about 19B4 applications is you have to demonstrate that the underlying market is either not uh, susceptible to market manipulation or needs surveillance of that market manipulation. Now, it doesn't make sense because the futures settle to a cash price that you don't need to demonstrate that to have a futures-based ETF. But that's the way regulation works. So 33 acts are actually held to a different regulatory standard and have this additional burden of demonstrating the existence of a regulated market of significant size. And that's been the, that's one of two major hurdles that 33 acts have, have run afoul. It's not actually investor protections. In fact, Eric, a 33 act fund could voluntarily take on many of the investor protections that accrue to the 40 act. It could voluntarily have an independent forward. It could voluntarily take on additional disclosure requirements. So I, from a regulatory process perspective, it's actually that you have this whole other thing, which is a 19B4 from the listing exchange, and you have to demonstrate a whole other thing, which is that you can satisfy this market surveillance requirement. And that's the primary gating factor. Now, I don't buy any of those. It's not that I'm disputing you, Matt. I'm disputing the SEC premise of all of the above for the simple reason that we have a gold ETF. Gold is not a security, and yet there's an ETF on it. So explain that. If you can say yes to a gold ETF, if you can say yes to a 3X inverse ETF, why can't you say yes to a Bitcoin ETF? This has nothing to do with any of that. The SEC could do it if they felt like it. End of story. I agree. And I, because you're right. Most people bring up the, they're, they're about to approve an inverse VIX futures ETF again, with like a new XIV and a 2X VIX. Now they just approved a 3X oil explorers ETN, which will be 50% more volatile than Bitcoin. And people were like, naturally, like, this isn't Pat's sniff test. What's going on with Gensler? This is crazy. Gensler just doesn't seem to care. I sometimes tell people when they come back to me on Twitter, oh, futures isn't ideal. I'm like, we all agree. There's this one person who doesn't agree. And, but he's the only person that matters. I mean, I'm going to go to Simeon and Leo one second. Matt, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the next speech? Because we did find that in his speeches provided a lot of the clues for the futures ETF, the mutual fund, the ETF. It seems like he does follow his words. So are you looking for some wording from him soon? What's the next clue to look for? Well, we and the rest of the market will look for wording from them. And we, and I assume the rest of the market, are also trying to push towards that future. We filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF a few weeks ago. We submitted 150 pages of research. We've done 20 meetings with the SEC over the last two years. So... And we're not alone. I assume Valkyrie's doing the same thing. I assume Van Eck is doing the same thing. I assume others are doing the same thing. So yes, you'll probably get signaling 
but you'll also, you also have people pushing from the bottom. The other place Eric will get it is if the people who have applied for a physical Bitcoin ETF push it all the way to the disapproval process, in which case the staff has to write demonstrating why they're not allowing that. And there's a Vanek product that's getting very close there. And so that will be the next signal, how they word that argument about why they're not approving this. They have to put it on paper. Historically, they've done a very good job. And so that'll be the next signal on the physical side. Okay. So let's leave that there. Uh, that's what we're going to just wait. It's like waiting for Godot a bit. You know, you just have to sort of sit around and wait for something to change mentally with Gensler. Until then, let's talk a little bit about going back to the future. Simeon, one thing about the futures ETF that I've noticed, and um, Lee, I want to get your take on this, is it had this huge first two days, clearly, and we saw a lot of smaller orders, so clearly a lot of retail money. We can see the options taking off. It seems like a lot of retail traders, yet it, the assets have somewhat topped off at 1.2 billion. Now they're at 1.4, but they plateaued a bit. Are you thinking that it's got the trading crowd now intact, but will we see a swing up? It, could you reach more advisors? Are you thinking you will? Or do you think it's going to be like a USO where you're one to two billion, but you traded like 200, 300 million a day, which is again, more like a trading tool. Or do you think it will slope up back up if and when advisors come around? So I, I think both of those constituencies are important to one another. And let me lead in with just a couple of tag along comments to what Rick and Matt were saying. A couple of things about the end user experience. Bitto does not have a K1. That's kind of a very useful thing. People hate them with a passion, so don't get so excited about it. 33 yards fun. K1s are toxic, number one. Number two, I'm just going to keep coming back to the futures market ain't such a bad place. There is more volume in CME futures than in Coinbase, as an example, almost 50% more. Price discovery is arguably better in futures. This is not a unique thing to Bitcoin world. Think about CDS. CDS shows up long before cash bonds change their, change their prices. So there's a real value proposition here that isn't just because it was the first thing that that was allowed to happen. I always officially use that word allowed. Remember, the SEC doesn't approve anything. They only allow it. Now, to specifically answer your question, the two constituencies are really important to one another. And we don't know exactly who the investor is. I should note that your uh, indication that going from a billion to a billion four in three weeks was a nothing burger. You set the bar high. That's the big. problem. You set it the bar so high. Like yeah. Nothing because it went though. to a billion in two days. So we kind of think 400 million in a few weeks is kind of a good thing. But yeah, we do. We set the bar really high. But the way I think about it is as follows. Look. If you're a long-term investor, there are two times when you're not. The time you buy it and the time you sell it. And it's an old saw in the ETF space. Don't worry. You know, the guys will go in and they'll talk to uh, an advisor. Don't worry about how we're trading, man, because you're just going to hold it forever. Except when your client comes back like six months later and says, I got to buy a vacation home, get me out. So the day you go in and the day you go out, you want those traders there. You want the option ecosystem. So I think they're both really important. And I think for this, we can't really tell, but we think both folks have, have shown up to be participants and investors a bit of. And Leah, you guys have been pretty experimental, we'll call it, with your filings. <laughs> you tried for a 1.25 times leverage Bitcoin futures ETF, which somebody said, what is this leverage for ants? Um, which I, I thought was funny. And it really isn't a lot of leverage, but we actually charted it. You have just a little bit of that leverage. You totally overcome the roll costs. And you come, you become like a Bitcoin plus ETF. I, it was a brilliant idea, I thought. SEC didn't like it. I guess, where are we going to go from here? Matt, Matt's company's pulling out. You guys are in the market. How do you see the futures ETFs progressing? I mean, you think we'll see a couple more Bitcoin, then an Ether, and then maybe a combo job? What's going to happen? Sure. And, and thank you. I love Zoolander. So that absolutely cracked me up. I liked it a lot. And you're absolutely right. There's a lot of pros to that filing that we had. Since I can't speak to those filings, I'm going to pivot a little bit. Eric, I think your greater question, which you did ask Simeon, and I think this is a follow-on, is where do we see the demand next year, next quarter, et cetera? You know, I'm really, really bullish uh, next quarter. I'm very bullish Q1. The reason behind that is I think that there's still very large pockets of wealth that are sitting on the sidelines trying to understand 
how well um, our two products are doing from a trading perspective, from a tracking perspective, how we're dealing with role and want to get a little bit more comfortable this quarter following and then next quarter push it through investment committee. I mean, this is definitely still a new asset class for a very large investment buy from, let's say, insurance, from sovereign wealth funds, from pensions, from endowments. I mean, it's not common that they would buy on trading day, but instead sit back and start to understand if this is really a vehicle that they feel comfortable and confident in to the extent that they will back it and it falls within their risk parameters. So I think that next year we are going to see a lot more growth, and I definitely hope so. In hopefully our products, there's other issuers coming out, obviously. So in the Bitcoin futures ETFs, to echo some of my brilliant panelists and what they said earlier, I think that there's much room for growth prior to getting the spot Bitcoin ETF approved. But I do think that in the interim, we have this wonderful product that Gensler was comfortable with, is comfortable with. It's a 40-act product. As mentioned, there's pros and cons. Thank you. Matt, for really bringing that down and, and breaking down the granularity. But I am very bullish next quarter when I believe large pockets of wealth will start to more comfortably wade into this product. I think they're trading well. So, um, Rick, let me come to you. Let me make sure I have these numbers right. You have 1.2 million clients? Uh, closer to 1.3 now. Okay. All right. Who's counting? All right. Um, that's, <laughs> that's like, that's like well, me with my Twitter followers. It's it's like Stimian said, you know, what's 100 million uh, here or there? So you have 1.2 million clients, 260 billion in assets. Can you speak a little bit to the, what you're hearing from them? Because we've, tra- we've speculated, we assume, and we've heard some anecdotal evidence that clients are really pressuring advisors. And so it is putting them in the situation to actually do the pros and cons on BitO and, and BTF versus these other solutions. What percentage of the 1.2 million have like thought, like sort of said to you, hey, I want crypto. And then what percent of their portfolio is ideal to put them in? Uh, Nobody really knows exactly how many own it because nobody in the financial services industry wants to ask. It's kind of like parents who are convinced their teenagers are not drinking beer. Yeah, they are. They just don't want you to know it. And, And that's because the advisory community has been dismissive. They can't assist. They tend to be pejorative. And so when clients are doing it on their own, often with the help of their teenagers to engage in this asset class, when they do ask advisors for help, most advisors say, sorry, we can't help you. Or they get even more pejorative by seeing it out of here and it's tulip bulbs and beanie babies. Um, so what the surveys are telling us is that about, uh, 20% of American adults own digital assets. And we know that most of them have advisors and that most advisors are not offering it, which means if you're an advisor, a lot of your clients own Bitcoin and other digital assets, and you don't know it, which means you're losing one AUM, you're losing the opportunity to serve and advise your client and to help protect your client from their own folly. And that's all a big, nasty problem. Many advisors would rather not engage in this space, Eric, because let's face it, advisors are over on average, over in their fifties or sixties, doing this a long time, managing a lot of money making a lot of money, clients are happy, returns are good. Why get into something new and different that we know nothing about when life is good and I'm playing golf two days a week? So a lot of advisors don't want to engage in this. They're finding themselves forced to because clients are asking about it. They're hearing about it. They're seeing it all over the place. With FTX logo slapped on the umpire's uniforms in the World Series, with Matt Damon doing uh, a TV commercial, along with Alec Baldwin and, and Spike Lee, how can you avoid this? So it has become mainstream. Advisors have no choice but to engage or they lose credibility with their clients and they really don't understand what it is they're talking about any more than their clients do. So the, the real message is that advisors have no choice but to acknowledge that this is real. It's here to stay. Your clients are engaged. You need to be able to answer their questions effectively and in an ideal state, help them. Incorporate it into the portfolio, get your compliance and legal departments to allow you to do so. These Bitcoin futures ETFs are a perfect way to get started in that venture. So we need to recognize, to your point, Eric, clients own it. They're going to continue owning it. They're going to continue asking about it. And if you're going to do your job as fiduciary, you need to engage. That's really interesting. I didn't realize the number of people doing it on their own was, was so high. That's fascinating. Um, now, your tulip bulbs come and I could see the boomer advisor going, ah, this is like cabbage patch kids or whatever, like, because it, it doesn't, 
it's, it doesn't click in everybody's mind what Bitcoin even is or why. And it, sometimes the people who, who promote it seem like grifters who are just pumping and seem to be only interested in the price. It doesn't have any internal rate of return. It's not like stocks where you get dividends and earnings growth. So there's also people who think it's just the commodity and it's only worth what the next guy would pay for it. Oliver Rennick wrote a piece that I thought was interesting in the Bitcoin ETF ultimately could be bad where if the ETF is approved, all the people are, you got the next guys coming in and then all the next guys are done, what happens then? And I guess, Matt, th this is a question for you, which is if you're an advisor, could you actually have a concern that this is a very volatile class? It's a risk asset. It may have a, a beta of three to the S&P and it may crash hard if the market falls. In other words, is Bitcoin just built on the foundation that the Fed built where everything just goes up and this just goes up a lot more. And when the market sells off, this will go down a lot more as people circle the wagons and keep their sort of Vanguard index fund, but sell all this crazy stuff. <laughs> Interesting framing, Eric. I mean, first of all, it is a volatile asset, right? It's up what, 180% this year or something. It also was down 50% in May. So anyone buying it who thinks it's not volatile is going to be sorely surprised. It's going to go up and down a lot. It always does. That's actually a valuable attribute if you're managing it as an advisor should and rebalancing because you can harvest that volatility because it's non-correlated. So I think of it more as a benefit than, than a risk. Your question, I mean, there, there are two important things to say about your question. First, we're a very long way from everyone having exposure. It's still so early in the crypto market. All of the professional capital doesn't have exposure to crypto. You go to advisor conferences, I was at a Raymond James conference earlier this week. The room is packed, hundreds of people in it. And you ask them how many own crypto in their client accounts. And it's a few brave souls or no one at all. So we're a long way for everyone being in it. I don't think once everyone gets in it, the price crashes. What I think is it gets boring. Like gold is now boring, right? What's gold's return since 1980? It's one and a half percent on a real basis per year. It's not a very exciting thing. Ultimately, like when my eight-year-old graduates from college, Bitcoin's going to be boring as dirt because its primary use is as a store of value. It's going through the phase of emerging as a store of value. That's when value creation happens. And once it's fully emerged, it will be a store of value, which means it'll be relatively boring to watch. And I think that's what's going to happen. But it's not like the market will fall out because everyone will still want to own a digital, sovereign, censorship-resistant, transportable store of value. And it may have other use cases on top of it, but I think of it more as an asymptotic curve than a bell curve, Eric. And I, I think that's the way to confront. And Rick, what percentage, if we're looking three, four years down the road, what percentage do you think advisors will allocate to crypto in say the average portfolio? Well, I'm the guy, Eric, who back in 2015, who invented the 1% uh, asset allocation strategy. And that's all that's necessary. Bitcoin's price performance since inception demonstrates that you don't need a significant allocation to have a material impact on your portfolio. A 1% allocation can materially improve the total return of the overall portfolio. But if it goes bad and Bitcoin blows up and becomes worthless, well, a 1% allocation is going to hurt you. Instead of earning 7% in a 60-40 portfolio, you earn six. But if it goes well, that portfolio could earn high double digits. So you can materially improve your client's personal financial security and financial future without any material significant downside. So you don't need to take an outsized risk in this emerging asset class to engage in it effectively. And that is something most advisors don't realize because we're used to investing 10, 20, 50% of money into a given asset class. And nobody wants to put 50% of the money into Bitcoin, reasonably so. And therefore their attitude is, well, if I'm not going to do a lot, I'm therefore going to do zero. And that's wrong. We got to get off zero. 1% allocation, 2%. Yale did a study in 2018 and said, even if you think Bitcoin is going to outperform by 200% a year, your allocation should be 6%. So you don't need to put a whole lot of money into this to have a material impact. And therefore, a 1% allocation is fine. And here's the best part. If it's only a 1% allocation, you want to be talking about this about 1% of the time. So this conversation is like way too long. We need to be talking about other stuff. Well, I have a, a theory. It's my e equals MC squared. It's called the 95-5 phenomenon, which is that the stuff that takes up 5% of your portfolio gets 95% of the media coverage. Right. And vice versa. Like BTI gets, there's no press coverage at all, but it's basically the biggest fund on earth and everybody uses it, but it's boring. Yeah. Um, and 
Leah, I, I will say I have seen, especially being uh, more in, immersed in the crypto Twitter crowd, there seems to be a good amount of people who are almost all in crypto. I know you're, you're probably closest to anybody in that world. That seems crazy to me. Like they would hear someone like me tell like a younger person, hey, you should buy a cheap index fund and just dollar cost average. And they're like, are you crazy? The valuations are so high. You're basically like telling someone to come in at the top so you boomers can cash out and it's all going to go to hell. And they have this just real negativity towards traditional investing and they want almost all their money in crypto. I mean, is that crazy or is that normal? I think a lot of it is not crazy. And I'm going to disagree with some of what you said, Rick, if that's okay here. What's interesting, and I think the beauty of these Bitcoin futures ETFs is that we know how to trade them and you can take those quote unquote outsized risks. I don't think that we need to have only 1% allocation for our portfolios. If it's a well-performing asset and we should be in this asset class and we're in a bull run, I don't understand how we can't have that right allocation. And that could be much higher. And again, because it's so easy to trade in any brokerage at this point, it's not difficult to try to hold it on an exchange or buy through traditional methods, or even with the private funds, it can be a little bit more difficult on the redemption cycle. But with these Bitcoin future ETFs, I think you can absolutely allocate much higher in your portfolios. And to be honest, I think a lot of people should. They already are, to your point, Eric. Do I think you should have 100% and mortgage your house, like crypto Twitter says? Not at all. I also think that that's probably not actually happening because we like to be very dramatic on crypto Twitter. But I do know a lot of clients. I mean, Valkyrie is an RIA, and we do talk to a lot of different clients and high net worth individuals. And I do come from the RIA space who have an, an enormous percentage of their wealth in various cryptos. To your point, Matt, I think that was very astute. I think that Bitcoin absolutely is solidifying its place little by little as a good digital store of value. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the emerging crypto assets couldn't serve a different place as a more speculative investment. So I think what will be interesting is how that diversified portfolio looks in the future. But again, if we now have a vehicle where we can trade it the same as many other, let's say, micro caps or uh, thinly traded and often volatile investment vehicles, why wouldn't we trade it exactly the same? I think that sometimes in our space, we can be a bit emotive. I think that for better and for worse of the Bitcoin space, it's very emotional. I think that often advisors and or individuals don't buy due to preconceived notions about what Bitcoin's principles are. And I think that also on the flip side, that's the beauty and why I think that Bitcoin is not going anywhere and has its rightful place in history, that people are willing to fight for this asset class due to its beliefs. So, Eric, just back to your point, I'd say there is no issue in allocating a very large percentage of your portfolio if that's the type of investment strategy you pursue as an investor. And so, Simeon, to riff off of that, regardless of the allocation, let's say it's 1%, let's say it's 10%, what are you selling to buy Bitto? What are they replacing? The gold, the commodity, equity? Like, what, what has to go? Assuming it's not new cash, let's say you have a portfolio, what are you dislodging? Sure. So, uh, Rick and Matt keyed in on this, but I, I did my homework. I, I went on the terminal, pulled up correlation matrix, and in uh, Bitcoin, it is 0.3 to the S&P 500. There ain't nothing left that does that. Everything's correlation of one these days. And exactly as Matt was saying, the volatility is more a feature than a bug because that's where you get that diversification uh, benefit that can be really, really valuable. And the other nice thing, and I'm about to answer your question, the other nice thing about Bitcoin is that it's a little easier to explain because it doesn't do much except be a store of value. Even its transactional use has not dramatically been taking law. But try to explain, as an example, Ethereum and talk to somebody about, well, it's a store of value, but then it gets gas. Wait a minute. What do you, you fill it with gas? I don't understand. So there are multiple value propositions with other cryptos, which could be good or bad, but it certainly makes for a more complex conversation. Knowing that Bitcoin is really a store of value makes the conversation straightforward. There you go. It's digital gold. Maybe it's a digital currency. It goes right in there in your commodity sleeve. Or if you lack a better place, it's an alpha satellite, if you will. But it really fits very nicely once you 
declared that store value. And there's absolutely no accident that it's rallying when we see a 6% print on year over year CPI. I mean, I was, uh, I was doing a media appearance about 10 days ago and I was waiting in the wings and a curmudgeonly value investor was on before me, an activist, I shall not name names, taking up my time. And they decided to quiz this person on Bitcoin. And when they shine the lights on the forehead, finally, this person capitulated and said, okay, fine. It's an inflation hedge. That's really one of its core attributes. Yeah, but okay. I know we got to wrap it. Matt, last word here, this idea that it is an inflation hedge to store value. I think this is the problem people run into with gold. They conflate store of value and hedge. And in 2008, gold was flat, down 3%. I mean, I guess it's better than down 30%, but zero correlation, you don't know what's going to happen. It could go down with stocks. And I think that's where Rick and other advisors might be a little cautious because it may not hedge. And sometimes it's tricky, the language between diversification and hedge. Is there some danger here that if you do go further in and replace your, your gold, that you are essentially just adding more risk and not actually diversifying? That's a great question. I mean, the truth of it, Eric, is gold is not a great short-term hedge for inflation either. That the correlation between inflation and gold's short-term movements is not very high. It's a hedge against 10-year inflation, five-year inflation. If you want short-term inflation hedge, you can buy tips. I really think the important word when you talk about Bitcoin, the reason people are investing it is it's the emerging store of value. Most people don't want a store of value. They want an emerging store of value that's going to appreciate over time. When was the best time to own gold? In the 1970s, when we went off the gold standard and the world was figuring out what gold was, and it went up 600% in real terms in a decade. Since it emerged as a mature post-gold standard store of value, it's gone nowhere for 30 years. I think that's true in Bitcoin as well. I don't think people are buying it because they want to hedge short-term inflation. I think they're buying it as a hedge against extreme long-term inflation, and they're buying it because it's going to play a bigger role in the world in the future than it does today. Well, it's a good place to end, Matt. And I know we went over and we went a little long today, Jim. Sorry, but uh, it was very riveting. You guys all uh, contributed great uh, information today. So thank you all for uh, coming on today to, in, into the podcast. And thanks, Jim, for having me. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks. What a great discussion. What a great discussion with really different perspectives. Really appreciate you all coming on. I really enjoyed it myself. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Nice meeting you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Matt yeah. and Rick. Mm -hmm. Take care, everybody. Bye. All right. See you guys. Bye, Bye guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. Pennies from Heaven was produced by Spark Network, Jim Wyant, and Elizabeth Thompson. Our theme music is Pearl Charles's Take Your Time. You can find her music at pearlcharlesmusic.bandcamp.com. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and sparknetwork.com.